0: Vladimir Putin's Russia assassinates its enemies by injecting them with poison. America, under the past three presidents, has killed those who threaten it clinically by pilotless drones from the air. So what to make of the recent controversy over Israel's assassination of Iran's top nuclear scientist, possibly by a robot? How does it square ethically, politically, and practically in terms of achieving its intended result? And how will it impact the incoming Biden administration's hopes of reinstating the Iranian nuclear deal? We'll talk to Ronan Bergman, an Israeli journalist, now with the New York Times, who is the foremost authority on his country's long history of targeted killings. And to his Times colleague, David Sanger, about Biden's new national security team, including a surprise choice for defense secretary, on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know
1: whether or not their presidents are crook.
0: I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydeman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, I have to think that in any other time, the story of the Israeli assassination of that nuclear scientist Mohsen Fakhrizadeh would have been getting a lot more attention for multiple reasons. You know, the potential to really exacerbate tensions in the Mideast, the whole question of what the whether the Iranians are going to respond and how they would respond. What did the Trump administration know beforehand about this uh, assassination? Did it give a green light? And, you know, finally, it's just a fucking great story about how this came about. So much you want to know. It's certainly cinematic. But given everything that's going on, COVID, the election, the transition going on, it's almost like forgotten. Yeah, it it
1: is an amazing story on on all those levels. You know, this whole question as to how it was actually done, whether it was a robot machine gun operated by, you know, from a satellite and artificial intelligence, you know, on the one hand, seems like it's something kind of fanciful out of the movies, But on the other hand, as I think we're going to hear when we talk to Ronan Bergman, this uh, amazing Israeli national security reporter who's uh, written some of these stories for The New York Times and has this new book out, Rise and Kill First, the Israelis have been pioneering these kinds of uh, assassinations for uh, decades now. Now, we don't know for sure that this was an Israeli operation, but it certainly has all of the hallmarks of the Mossad. And... um, this question as to whether it was actually done by this you know remote robotic machine gun or whether there were assassins on the ground who took out this uh, nuclear scientist is actually uh, an interesting and relevant part of the larger kind of geopolitical story and about what's going on inside. Yeah, I
0: mean, you know, look, uh, robotic assassins, it does seem like something out of the movies, but, you know, there have been signs of this emerging for some time uh, in terms of a larger debate about you know robotic warfare that you know we may end up in a in a world where robots are on the front lines uh, trying to take out other robots, which um, you know could make for some uh, interesting video games, if nothing else yeah
1: but and and of course it does raise all of these interesting kind of ethical and and you know moral questions you know the ethical choices, you know pitting democratic principles against. In the case of Israel, the need to defend its its citizens, and in this country, we have a executive order that outlaws assassinations, but uh, it didn't, but of course, it didn't as you stop us out, from
0: killing Soleimani, the head of it, the Iranian ex- Revolutionary Guard. Ex- exactly, you know,
1: and and uh, the administration wouldn't call that assassination; they would call it a lawful act of war. It's a pretty fine line.
0: Yeah, I mean, but look, I mean, in in the war on terror, as I pointed out in the introduction, you know, we've been killing people by drone for years now. It was kind of a controversy for a while, for a few years uh, back in the Obama days, but it disappeared from the political dialogue in Washington once Trump took office, even though the drone strikes can have continued. Continued, yeah. Yeah. And the one one last point I want to make about, about these remote killings is, it, you know, it
1: takes... It takes away a crucial element of warfare. Look, on the one hand, you know, it is true that these drone strikes were more precise and there was less probably less collateral damage than if you had gone in with, with uh, you know, airplanes
0: and bombed villages. Well, that, that's airplanes, not necessarily more precise than, you know, actual targeted killings on the ground. Well, that's I mean, a, not right. more that's precise a, that's a than Putin's slightly, use of poison right. to, <laughs> right. to assassinate but you don't always his have the enemies.
1: Opportunity to, to do that. But on the other hand, there is something antiseptic about these drone strikes where, you know, you have someone pulling the trigger, the virtual trigger from thousands of miles away, and then being being able to go home for dinner with his or her family and not feel the immediacy of the consequences of, of what you've done. And uh, does that, you know, kind of take, you know, lull us into a sense that you can have wars without all of the terrible, you know, tragedy that go along with wars because it's so far away. So...
0: But look, I I mean, I don't think we should go too far on the robotic side of this because, and and I'm sure we'll discuss this with Ronan, I mean, robots don't smuggle in the machine guns (laughs) that were used or the machine gun that was used to assassinate that uh, scientist. So somebody had to give the gun some person had to provide the gun to the robot, and uh, presumably that happened inside Iran. So I don't think this was a purely robotic killing. And, you know, then the question is, was somebody controlling the robot from afar? But those are all sort of clinical details that we'd like to know the answer to. And um, we've got two folks who will know more about this than anybody else to uh, talk to. So let's get to it. We now have with us David Sanger of the New York Times, author most recently of The Perfect Weapon, and Ronan Bergman, also of the New York Times, joining us from Tel Aviv and author of uh, Rise and Kill First The Secret History of Israel's Targeted Assassinations, and I understand soon to be a uh, HBO movie. David's book has already been turned into an HBO documentary. So, David and Ronan, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. Thank you. So, a lot to talk about, but let's start out, David, with Biden's cabinet picks. Uh, Two takeaways uh, occur to me. Uh, Number one is there's a lot of uh, reshuffling of the deck of the Obama administration here. We just learned today that Dennis McDonough, who was... uh, Obama's chief of staff uh, is going to be VA. Uh, Secretary Susan Rice, who was Obama's national security advisor, is going to be domestic policy chief in the um, Biden White House. But also another takeaway is uh, this is turning into um, a trickier exercise than I suspect a lot of the Biden people um, were hoping for, uh, starting with the pick this week of General Austin to be defense secretary, already pushback from Democrats who are very wary of another waiver for a military officer to become the civilian head of the Pentagon. Do you think the Biden folks were aware that they'd be getting pushback from their own party on the, uh, on such a high profile pick? Well, they should have been. I I think there are
2: two issues with General Austin, who was, by every account I've seen, a a pretty fine officer. Although if you go into Ash Carter's autobiography of his time as defense secretary, he takes a piece out of him for um, how they were dealing with parts of the Iraq war with plans for attacks for which he didn't believe they had the forces. But I would say that there are two issues here, and one of them is the one you're hearing about. And the one I'm worried about the most is the one you're not hearing about. So the one you're hearing about is the waiver, right? And for those who don't keep up with such intricacies, since the creation of the Secretary of Defense position, there's been a provision in the law that you have to be out of service for a certain amount of time as a general officer before you could come in as a civilian Secretary of Defense. And the theory is we're supposed to have civilian control of the military and that having somebody retire as an officer and then turn around and get appointed in the political role as secretary of defense, the policy role, is a little like what happens in Pakistan and that that was not the look that we should have in a democracy. And I I actually feel pretty strongly about that. Initially, that waiting time was 10 years. Then Congress changed it down to seven. They've issued two waivers. One was for George Marshall who was Defense Secretary briefly, uh, of course, was also more famously Secretary of State. And then once for Jim Mattis, which Democrats voted for because they thought that Mattis would be a calming influence on President Trump. At the time that the Mattis waiver was done, people like Jack Reed, obviously a veteran on the Armed Services Committee, said, that's it. This should be a once in a generation thing. I'm not doing this again. Well, it'll be interesting to see if he's doing this again.
0: <laughs> okay. All right. So what's the, what's the issue we're not hearing about that you think is uh, more important? If you read everything that Congress and most others talk about in the American,
2: the national defense strategy, we're supposed to be pivoting away from the Middle East and focusing on the superpower competition with Russia and China, mostly China. And that means moving away from old weapon systems, moving away from old thought about how you move troops around the world, focusing on new and emerging technologies, focusing on space, cyber, all of that. That is not Lloyd Austin. He spent his time you know, in the Middle East the past 20 years dealing with Iraq and Afghanistan. That was Michelle for- Fornoy, who had been presumed to be the leading candidate for this and who had spent her entire career really focused on what it would take to transform the military and air time in the Pentagon to these emerging technologies. We are way behind on this. Like we are dangerously behind on this. And spending another 4 years getting 4 more years behind on this without a defense secretary who wakes up every single morning thinking what legacy system can I kill so that I can go build new technologies and space cyber and so forth that's a big lost opportunity in my mind so i have a
1: couple of quick questions about austin one just to follow up on the point that you just made assuming he is confirmed which is i think right now likely needs to be, a, needs to be an assumption but is likely yeah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. and he does not have that kind of skill set that you're talking about in terms of his sort of strategic Capability. How does an administration fill in the gaps? I mean, also, you know. Great question. It
2: was a really good question. So, first of all, we, we didn't say, obviously, what Austin, if appointed, if confirmed, would be the first black Secretary of Defense in a military that's had a really hard time, generally, and a particularly hard time under Donald Trump, having black senior officers through the ranks. And I think the message it sends, having him as a defense secretary is a tremendous message. So let's not walk away from, you know, what is what is a very important symbolic move here and a very important real move here as well.
1: I mean, I think the military is, I don't know how they cl- classify this as this the uniform military, but it is something like 60% people of color, right? I mean, it's a huge percentage of the entire force. But the
2: very senior officer corps, right. four stars, three stars, is overwhelmingly white. Right,
1: and I'm just making the point that all the more reason... To have a Secretary of Defense who is a person of color,
2: absolutely, absolutely, and I and I think that that was a brilliant move. And also, you know, this is in general, this is a cabinet that is not the team of rivals; it's the team of old buddies. And President-elect Biden is very comfortable with Lloyd Austin. Lloyd Austin knew Bo Biden. They did a lot together when Bo Biden was alive, and of course, deployed in Iraq. And Biden visited him frequently. And I think he's just got a level of comfort with him. And you know, the president deserves to have senior people in his cabinet in, which, in whom he's got complete and total confidence. So I'm not suggesting here for a moment that it was not easily explained choice. I'm just saying that between the waiver and the thinking about the future of the force, there is a downside to, to this as well. And the only solution to that is to Persuade somebody who is really focused on that, those kind of issues, to be the deputy. We have had people focused on those issues as the the deputy. Bob Work, during uh, the time that President Obama was in, and he stayed on through the beginning of the Trump administration. Maybe they could persuade Michelle Fornoy, having turned her back to this, to come back as deputy. Her last job was undersecretary for policy, the job just below deputy that would be you know a remarkable thing if she was uh, willing to go do that. Somebody like Eric Rosenbach who served as Ash Carter's chief of staff and uh, was the cyber head at the Pentagon to come in as a deputy, a superb cyber person all the way through. all of those would be fine choices, but there's nothing like having the Secretary of Defense focused
0: on. It. So I want to come back to a point you were making before that we're supposed to be pivoting to the uh, superpower relationship with China uh, away from the Mideast. I mean, it seems to me events in the Mideast have a long, rich history of dominating events around the world and biting officials in the ass in yep. in Washington. Mm-hmm. And there's certainly no shortage. Total events in China. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> OK. But there's no shortage of tensions in the Mideast right now. In fact, let's bring Ronan into the discussion because both of you guys were writing last week about the assassination of the Iranian nuclear scientist Mossad Fakhrizadeh and all the complications that that could cause for the incoming administration and for and its hopes for re-engaging with Iran on the nuclear deal. So Ronan, first of all, just starting out with that, I think the Iranians announced uh, just uh, yesterday That they had rounded up a number of suspects uh, they believe committed the assassination by remote control, a machine, a remote control operated machine gun, and that this will prove Zionist complicity as well as possible American complicity. Let's start out with what the Iranians just announced about this. Uh, Should we give credence to that? What do you make of it?
3: Well, I wouldn't give much credit to everything that the regime is saying, especially when it comes to understanding what exactly happened or apprehending and put into custody and interrogation the perpetrators. When just shortly after the assassination took place, the Friday before last, they said that there was a gun battle which was followed by a pursuit, followed by the arrest of two, one, two or three or four, different versions of the assassins, and that they are under interrogation. Now, this version completely vanished and was just a day after or two days after replaced with another version that there was, there were no assassins, only a killer robot. That version, as our great colleague, uh, Farnas at the at the Times, um, who wrote with us that, that story, uh, that, that came from the first one to tell the story was allegedly an independent creator of documentaries, etc. But then it turns out that they, he is a relative of someone from the Revolutionary Guard, the IRGC, high rank officer. Coincidentally, of course, it was up to the Revolutionary Guard to be protecting the late uh, Mr. H- uh, Professor Fakhrizadeh, and they failed. Now, if there were no assassins, only killer robot, then Maybe it's a good explanation why no assassins were caught or captured or injured or killed or why it was impossible to prevent that assassination. And now, the, the last few days, we have seen, I think, an extraordinary new spin coming from mainly from the revolutionary Guard, because there are other factions and our intelligence service who trying to bash them and said that they gave a warning and the IRGC were not listening. The Iranian regime is not monolithic and coherent. They are internal struggles. But the, the fine line coming now is glorification of the Mossad, explaining how efficient, lethal, and effective is the targeted killing campaign of Mossad. Therefore, creating a narrative as if that assassination by a killer robot is something like a, a force majeure, something you cannot prevent. And just yesterday, the spokesperson for the Revolutionary Guard said that the, the killing of a nuclear scientist in the middle of a street in Tehran by a killer robot via satellite is not endangering or jeopardizing Iranian national security. And I think to myself, if someone just killed your chief nuclear military scientist and you think this doesn't jeopardize your uh, national security, what does?
1: Well, Ronan, I gotta ask you, first of all, it sounds to me like the IRGC has read your book.
3: They say they did.
2: They don't get HBO over there, though. They're going to have to go. They're going to have to get pirated copies of the series. I think. <laughs> yeah, you know? that's, right.
3: They, they, but they, that's right. But seriously, <laughs> the they did. The Iran never never uh, signed the intellectual property treaties, and under this violation, they published uh, many many books without paying any royalties, including mine. They the uh, the office of the Speaker of Parliament published a version of, of my book, but of course without any kind of Uh, without the parts that are unflattering to to the Iranian regime.
1: (laughs) I just wanted to follow up on one specific thing, because, you know, as your book lays out in stunning detail, I mean, the Israelis pioneered remote killings with the use of drones. Back then it was drones identifying the target and then Apache helicopters taking them out. um, Which we have
0: adopted in spades, by the way. Which we have adopted in spades. But, but, uh,
1: But is it... In your view, is it within the realm of the possible or believable that, uh, that the Israelis may have taken out Fakr Dazei using a, an AI-directed machine gun or a combination of that remote robotic machine gun and assassins on the ground? What do you actually think happened, knowing that it's hard to know for sure, but what would your guess be?
3: Well, um, I'm sure that when we'll have it, the New York Times, the reliable version that we can attribute to sources of what exactly happened there, the Friday before last, uh, just before uh, the afternoon, uh, we will publish that. In the, the meantime, we are depending on, on Iranian sources who are giving contradictive reports. However, it seems that, at least in most of the reports, if not in all of them, there is a, um, a Zamiyad. Zamiad is, is a mini truck, the local version of, uh, of a Nissan. And that Zamyad is apparently has some kind of autonomous remote control weapon, some kind of a machine gun that was operated either from another country via satellite as the Iranians claim, or maybe from a, a, a near location, a near command room, maybe from another car. Just bear in mind that you know in the movies it all goes You know James Bond, uh, it all goes or the the Jackal by 1997 with Bruce Willis where they have a remote control assassination but in reality if you are situated in another country that makes the situation very complicated and tricky because what you see when you are there at the command room is not what is happening on the ground because there is something like a second at least if you are fast and if you are your uh, technology and equipment is the best, it's it's at least a second from the minute the the visual is created until you see it. And at least a second from your signal to the gun, if you need to adjust it, or fire, goes back. So that at least two seconds, almost two seconds, that you will need to calculate the movement of the object that you are trying to hit with the adjustment of your hindsight. So this is very, very complicated. And to have, and of course, the most important question, you know, if there was a robot, then who put the robot there?
2: It didn't appear by itself. It was still required human beings on the ground, which is why that announcement yesterday that they had uh, arrested people was, you know, particularly interesting.
0: But that said, David, I mean, this—you know—people have talked about, uh, you know, robotic warfare for some years now uh, as a sort of theoretical, right?
3: Um, and remote uh, control
2: and remote yeah. control guns are not unusual. I and mean, Ronan, don't they use those uh, along the West Bank
3: in Gaza? There's um, in Gaza. there's a, a system, system produced by one of the military industries in Israel called Rafael. The system is called Roa Yora, which rhymes in Hebrew and means. You see, you shoot, but in abbreviation to a female, because there are female soldiers who only female soldiers who are operating uh, this uh, line of um, of towers with a machine gun connected to a uh, behind the lines command room where female officers are directing and pulling the trigger in order to stop infiltration of terrorists from Gaza to, to Israel. And they say it's very precise. It has optical... So they, these, these, as, as David says, these, these are a system in use every day.
2: And it's a it's in a lot of movies. I mean, really, do you get out very much? I mean, you know...
0: <laughs> not these days I do not get out uh, very much. But again, talking, live talking, about, yeah.
3: talking about the movie, you know, we, we see James Bond. We see 007. And if there was a professional watching that movie with us, he would say that, what he, that the, 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 the most important part that, he, that seems impossible or difficult for him was not what we see, but what we don't see. He reached for the gun and start shooting, but the professional will ask, but where did he get the gun from? He is in Prague or in Vienna or in London. Where did he get the gun from? How did the gun was smuggled, or any other kind of weapon? how was that smuggled into the target country, the enemy country? Well, so
1: let's, let's talk about the implications of this assassination, and, and this is really for both of you. What impact will this really have in terms of stopping, or not stopping, but slowing down the Iranian march to building a, a nuclear arsenal? Because, I mean, the reality is, isn't it, that he is replaceable. There was a time where nuclear scientists might have been less replaceable, but now they've got the infrastructure, they've got the know-how. So at the end of the day, is this really about slowing down the program or was it really about jamming the uh, incoming Biden administration, which wants to re-engage diplomatically with with Iran and, and re-enter the 2015 agreement? Um, let's start with David.
2: Sure. So I'll take the, the first shot at that. I I think that if it does slow down the program, it's going to be a modest slowdown, and I'll explain why that is. And that anything that they could do within this administration or that the Israelis could do to keep Joe Biden from going through his stated policy, which is to rein- reinstate the uh, Iran nuclear deal, they're perfectly happy to go, you know, throw sand in the gears there. So, on the first part, there are two parts to the nuclear program, really three. There's the production of the nuclear fuel that's been moving forward and has been resumed, obviously, since President Trump pulled out of the nuclear deal. You saw a facility that Ronan and I wrote about with our colleagues uh, that blew up in, uh, in July, had a mysterious explosion that was to build advanced centrifuges. That's the fuel cycle. The thing about nuclear weapons is, Without uranium or plutonium, you can't build them. So obviously the fuel cycle is a big target. The fuel no cycle- cool, No no cool. That's right. And the fuel cycle was, of course, the target of Olympic Games, which was the most sophisticated cyber attack on a piece of infrastructure we've ever seen a decade ago. And even Olympic Games, the Israeli-U.S. cyber attack on the Natanz plant, only set the Iranians back by a year, year and a half. At the time it happened, they had 5,000 centrifuges. Five years later, when they negotiated the Iran nuclear deal, they had 19,000 centrifuges. So that tells you that they came back. And the second part of the program is the actual working on the weapons, which was formally suspended in 2003. And we know from the archive that the Israelis stole from Iran that uh, Muslim day was, of course, the sort of guiding light. He was also target number one. So it's hard for me to believe that he didn't set up other scientists to begin to, to fill in for his knowledge if he was taken out of the game. And that program has been continuing at a low level, but even the United States does not say it's in full fledge these days. So I don't think it it would slow them down all that much. You know, he was a key person, but they're a long way from weaponization. They don't even have the fuel yet.
0: Yeah, but just picking up on that, uh, didn't Iran recently announced it was expanding its enrichment and yes. also restricted monitoring by uh, the U.N. N- nuclear they watchdogs? They said that they would restrict the monitoring. They have not
2: yet actually restricted the monitoring. They said in a right, few months there was, they may if Biden doesn't come in and begin to negotiate out the New Deal.
0: But there was a statement, I think, by both by the Europeans, you know, raising concerns about yep. this, saying mm-hmm. this is going to set back uh, an effort to, you know, re-engage on the uh, JCPOA. I'm wondering, you know, after the assassination last week, there was a lot of expectation that Iran will have to retaliate. And that's where this gets very complicated, depending on what the retaliation is. They haven't yet. Why not? Are you still expecting it? And uh, in what form would you expect retaliation would take? Ronan?
3: I will relate to that in a minute. Just wanted to continue your, your question, and what David just said, about what the, was the purpose of that, uh, that assassination, whoever is behind that. Uh, and of course, we do not have any confirmation, public confirmation from American or, or Israeli sources. But I don't know what was the decision-making process uh, asked to bring or or aiming to bring. But I think it's it's highly unlikely that someone started to plan, execute the assassination just following the results of the elections in, in the United States. To plan such assassination, to kill someone who is probably the second most guarded person in Iran, someone that the Iranians knew that Israel or the United States or both are aiming at, and he is at high risk and was surrounded by bodyguards. Something like that would take months, if not more. And that planning it needs to be based on years of building networks of spies, cyber, other intelligence means inside Iran. Now, if that was in motion, then of course someone can claim or, or um, come with the, with the mindset and, and the point of view that, that, that this action should have been stopped because of the results of the election the, the, and, the, and the, the, the fact that Joe Biden is going to be the next president only in January. But just to, to think that this was a conspiracy that started its motion after the elections in America, I think this is highly, highly unlikely. Now on revenge, Look, the Iranians have demonstrated, as I always uh, think, being moderate, practical and rational when it comes to any kind of threat to their regime. This re- I, I believe that this regime, this revolution, like any revolution, they start with some new agenda on, on, on religion or, 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 or economics or politics, but they, they remain with only one desire, and that desire is to remain the regime. And they are interested in that. And throughout the last year, more than, than, than one year, but especially during 2020, the Iranians have suffered suffered blow after blow after mysterious explosion, the killing of um, Qasem Soleimani in January, their most important officer and, and special operation uh, commander, now Fakhrizadeh. They have showed that they can limit if going to, into any kind of retaliation. And I think what they are looking at is what would happen when President Biden walks into the Oval Office. Will he give them the, the one thing, and urgently? And this is why they are threatening to withdraw from the non-proliferation treaty in two months if he doesn't give that. And that is access to their frozen bank accounts. They, are, they need cash They are on the verge of bankruptcy.
1: But uh, Ronan, you know, as you know, and as you've reported on, uh, and David also, there are different factions in Iran and with different interests and different approaches. You have the the IRGC, and I guess the question is: is their hand strengthened, the sort of the, the hand of the hardliners strengthened or weakened in the wake of this assassination? And of course, you have the president uh, Rouhani, who had pursued diplomacy in the first place. You have Khamenei, the the, the uh, theocratic leader, sometimes hard to know exactly where where he stands in all of this. But wh- what are the internal politics in the wake of this uh, assassination? And who is strengthened and who is weakened by
3: it? Well, the, the coming June elections will be the last chance for those representing the more moderate approach, like Rouhani, but you know, the, the people he will, he is not uh, a candidate, people who could succeed him from his group to prove that interaction, negotiation with the West was a good thing and profitable for the Iranian people. And this gives them a lot of energy and a lot of motivation to reach some kind of, of a new agreement with the new president. Um, as per what Khamenei is leading, of course, he cannot be supreme leader, nothing can be approved without him. But he also, as I said before, he also he understands that in order to not jeopardizing the survival of the regime, they need the money. The money is frozen because of American sanctions. They need those sanctions lifted immediately. Otherwise, they risk another set of demonstrations in their streets.
0: Let's talk about a number of other countries that conduct assassinations and how the Biden folks will be dealing with them, starting with uh, Iran's neighbor, the Saudis, who uh, of course famously assassinated uh, a Washington Post journalist in 2018. Biden is on record saying he wants to hold the Saudis accountable for this. There's a a DNI report that Congress mandated be released to them about uh, what the U.S. intelligence community knows about the assassination, and in particular, the role of the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. What do you expect the um, Biden folks to be doing right off the bat on the Saudi front?
2: This is going to be a really early test of whether Jake Sullivan and uh, Tony Blinken, assuming that Mr. Blinken gets confirmed, which I suspect he will, whether What happens when they have to go take all they have said about human rights issues and put it right up against one of the biggest American relationships? When the Khashoggi killing happened, the Trump administration made a show of saying, we will certainly you know, get a full investigation and hold everyone accountable. They got annoyed every time the question came up. At some points, Secretary Pompeo said to reporters, you're only dwelling on this because he was himself a journalist. You know, which seemed to me to be a remarkable thing. And then at other (laughs) points, he said, look, a lot of countries do bad things, but that does not necessarily mean that we have to go terminate our relationship with them. Now, Shiji was also a U.S. resident. It is not inconceivable that the Justice Department, under a Biden administration, could indict the crown prince.
0: Well, that would be quite a provocative step it, there's it would. There, so there's immunity issues i think that could be a barrier to that wouldn't there well be? it could be but it would also send a message that the crown prince can do many things
2: but he can't step into the united states
0: yeah right right and and, and they can and there are mbs underlings like sad al katani who could be easily no, sir, easily without easily. that so um, you haven't
2: seen any problem. of
0: that happen
2: and I think that would that's going to be that's going to be the first issue that's going to come up in front of the National Security Advisor, the Secretary of State, and the Attorney General.
3: Let me let me continue maybe and, and, and connect that to uh, the uh, attempts, the the pressure that both Israel and the United States exercised throughout the last few months on Saudi Arabia to follow up on um, Bahrain, the UAE, and Sudan. And but it hasn't
0: worked. The the Saudis have not gone along. In fact, they're getting quite a bit of pushback from some of the members of the royal family, starting with Prince Turkey bin Faisal, the former uh, chief of Saudi intelligence.
3: And I think that the the main problem was, or the main obstacle was the king himself, or his approach at least. But the the deal that uh, the U.S. government under Trump offered MBS was something that I think or according to some assessment of some of the people that, that were present, if it was only up to him, he would have accepted that. And the deal was that he would be invited to the ceremony in Washington, where the normalization of relations with Bahrain and the UAE was announced. He will announce the same about Saudi Arabia and Israel. In return, he will receive a visit to to Washington, meeting with the president and others, with all. The glorification of such a visit that President Trump can supply, and he—it was said to him, "Look, even if the new president, even if Joe Biden, this was not, of course, not said near President Trump, but even if Biden would win, he cannot undo a visit that already happened, and cannot undo a sort of re-legitimization that such a visit would supply you, Mr. Crown Prince." But he declined. He declined because there were others, according to some assessment, there were others in the royal family who said it, Saudi Arabia is in support of the UAE or Bahrain or Sudan and what they are doing with Israel. But Saudi Arabia is different. They are the custodian of Islam. They have different duty. If they would make such a move, this will change everything. And for the time being, they are left in the shadows and not recognizing Israeli officials.
2: Also, if the crown prince came, the Saudis wanted to guarantee there would be no protests about his arrival? Yeah, right.
3: Yeah,
0: exactly. I, I want to get to another country that engages in assassinations with impunity, and that's Russia. But before I do, just a couple of other quick beats on the Mideast. It seems another early test for the Biden folks is... What they're going to say, if anything, on the State Department's decision to reverse years of U.S. policy on uh, Israeli settlements on the West Bank, uh, declaring them under Pompeo some months ago legal, which was a complete abandonment of where the State Department had been before. Should we expect the Blinken State Department and the Biden administration to reverse that stand by the Pompeo State Department? I'd be pretty shocked if they didn't. If they did
2: not? If they did not reverse it, because it undercuts the essential argument that was made throughout the Obama administration when Mr. Blinken was Deputy Secretary of State, when he was Deputy National Security Advisor, that basically said you cannot prejudge these, uh, you can't put these settlements in place and basically create facts on the ground that you then expect to be enshrined in some final agreement with the Palestinians.
0: Ronan, how will that go down with the Israelis, if, if Netanyahu is Ronan, still prime am I, minister? am I
2: right here? Can you imagine this staying
0: in place?
3: Well, if they want to reinstate the traditional, bipartisan, by the way, until Trump, uh, policy of, of the US government towards Israel and towards the, the settlements, even during very, very friendly administrations like during the relationship between President George W. Bush and Ariel Sharon, etc., then they need to cancel, undo what uh, the Trump administration has done. Uh, look, from the Israeli point of view, this could play a role in the coming Israeli election. So I would assume if there are elections taking place in Israel and more likely that they will than they won't, uh, in, in April or, or March even, then I would assume that the, the Biden administration will stay away from doing anything drastic at the beginning. Because if it will, then Prime Minister Netanyahu will use that as another yet another token, another chip in his campaign. He would say, I told you. That these Democrats, the left, the liberals, that they are against us. That I told. I, this is what I said all, all along, and here is the proof. Now they, you know, they are uh, uh, replacing or, or, or relocating the embassy to Tel Aviv, or they are declaring our settlements as illegal, because Netanyahu is that master of twisting everything and knowing how to use that as a spin for his own. Constituency, uh, so to speak, at at home, and nowadays when he's fighting for the continuation of his political career, maybe fighting to stay out of jail, he will use everything he can.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, Ishakov you said that Russia. Russia. Yeah, I want to hear well,
0: David's take on the Russia. Well, uh, I want to
1: move. We can do Russia quickly, but I want to get to Ronan's book. Uh, So what's your Russia question?
0: Well, I just, you know, that's another challenge for the uh, incoming uh, Biden administration. What approach they're going to take with Putin and holding uh, him accountable, not just for what he did in 2016, but for continued cyber attacks. You wrote just the other day about a very sophisticated cyber attack on FireEye, the cybersecurity firm that has been linked to the Russians. And a week before that, we wrote about an attack, series of attacks believed to be out of
2: Russia, but not certain, on the um, cold chain supply for vaccines.
0: So this is a, a pretty good sign that the Russians uh, have not been stopped at all from engaging in rather aggressive cyber offensives They yes. They just uh, didn't, they just the didn't
2: do the election system this time, and they, yeah. they focused on on other things. So there's a scene in the documentary version of The Perfect Weapon where we ask Biden during the primaries about Putin. And he spins around. He's at an airport someplace. And he says, Vladimir Putin knows me. And he doesn't want to see me elected because he knows um, I'm coming after him and so forth and so on. He basically takes the position that he is going to radically change the relationship with Russia, and they're going to feel a lot of pushback. In fact, the Russians have felt some pushback, but mostly from places like Cyber Command. They have not felt it, obviously, from the President of the United States. And the really interesting question is, how is Biden going to do that, especially because he is going to have 15 days, 15 days after inauguration, to renegotiate or extend New START it expires february 5th if it goes and expires we are without our last major arms control treaty with russia and they are free to go increase the size of the arsenal as much as they want so it's not like they're going to have to like have time to sit around and not think about how they're going to go deal with putin 15 days
1: okay let's uh, let's get back to assassinations uh, for a minute here <laughs> and i want to turn to ronan's uh, terrific book, Rise and Kill First, The Secret History of Israel's Targeted Assassinations, because I think you say in the book that Israel has used assassinations for statecraft uh, more than any other country in, in the modern era. Tell us, well, first of all, tell us the, the biblical or I guess Talmudic origins of the name of your book, Rise and Kill First, because when I first saw it, I thought that that's an unusual title. So where does that come from?
3: So um, when I signed the the contract back in 2010 with Random House, they asked me, how long will it take you to write the book? I said, one year. They said, are you sure? I said, yeah. I said, why, do we, why don't we write in the contract a year and a half, just you know, to be the safe zone of not violating the contract. I said, you could, I'm very exact and very punctuate with deadlines. I always know how long will it take me. It will take me so you can write whatever you like. It will take me a year. They wrote a year and a half. They didn't listen. And after that, I was delayed in six more years. Uh, the reason <laughs> for that, uh, exactly all the deadline. Uh, the reason for that was I decided to put aside everything that was written on Israeli intelligence before and just do everything from scratch. So I interviewed, it ended up with a list of interviews of 1000 people. And after submitting, the Random House were like desperate. They thought that they will never see the, the manuscript. And when I submit it, of course there, there comes the time to decide on a name. And someone said, um, let's go for the obvious. let's go for License to Kill. But then we, we searched Amazon, and it turns out <laughs> that there are 64 other books called License to Kill.
0: And a couple uh, so of movies, said, I think, as well. But
3: Yeah, yeah so we'll, we'll leave that. And then uh, someone came with this horrible idea, uh, it was me, to to, say, to use the art of assassination, like Sun Tzu, Art of War, which sounds like a Zen book, nobody would read it. And then someone who was actually going through the millions of words of transcript of interviews with 1,000 people said, You know, Ronan, there's one sentence that many of your different interviewees keep on repeating, while of course not they're not synchronized or coordinated. And this is a quote from the Babylonian Talmud that says, Whoever comes to kill you, rise up and kill him first. So, whoever comes to kill you, rise up and kill him first. And so we use that as the name of the book, Rise and Kill First. Now, I think that those people who use that quote, they didn't say that just to impress me, all my readers with their um, understanding and knowledge of of Jewish scripture. They wanted to explain their mindset when being involved in those actions, way beyond enemy lines. But also, you know, these are morally at least controversial actions, death verdict, execution without a trial, without due process, without evidence, without a judge. And I think what they were trying to say is that in their mindset, and, and, I, and I have no judgment in the book, if someone reads the book, there's no author's voice. I am I'm, I'm distant. Everyone can have his own or her own uh, opinion. But according to their opinion, the the people from Prime Minister, Minister of Defense who ordered the assassinations to the actual assassins who are speaking, I was lucky they are speaking, most of them on the record. That was their mindset. That there is for a country in the Middle East uh, suffering from the past trauma of the Holocaust in order to prevent a, a second annihilation, there is no other hope, there is no other choice, there is no possibility but to attribute less importance to international law, diplomacy, and do what they think is necessary, rise and kill first.
0: How many assassinations has the Mossad carried out?
3: Well, it's not just the Mossad. It's the the whole of the Israeli intelligence community, Mossad military intelligence in the Shinbe, the domestic uh, uh, secret service, and Israeli uh, military, the IDF, including the Air Force, and we are talking about thousands of them. The book, I don't recall the number, but the book has uh, some estimate quite carefully calculated, but we are talking about at least, I think, 3,000 operations of assassination, including with drones, including outside of Israel in the occupied territories. It's the only country that saw targeted killings or assassinations. Uh, The the American intelligence community is using very different names because of legal reasons. Assassinations are forbidden, targeted killings are permitted in some cases. But in Israel, they, they, all, they use all the different names, but refer to the same thing. They use this as a prime tool as in order to um, prolong the time between war and all-out war and, and, and the second all-out war, and to confront the daily dangers that Israel faces. And they did that, I think, by far. Israel is the country that used targeted killing by far more than any other country, at least in the West, after the Second World War. So, you know,
1: you do a wonderful job in the book of showing Israeli officials grappling with these moral and legal dilemmas. But I guess the question is, um, at the end of the day, how effective a tool has targeted assassinations been for Israel? And, you know, one example is, you know, there are a number of of examples in, in your book where you show that taking out one enemy, that person is replaced by someone who may be more powerful and, and more effective. The example I'm thinking about is the head of, uh, of Hezbollah, Abbas Massawi, who was replaced by Nasrallah, and, and that also elevated Imad Magnia, who is one of the, was one of the most effective and deadly operators that uh, Israel ever had to contend with. So do you have a bottom line uh, in terms of the overall effectiveness of targeted assassinations as a, as a
3: tool? Well, I think that there's there's no bottom line in one rule that, that uh, relates to all of that, because history change, reality change, situation changes. I think that if, like, to find a few thumb rules that do have some common wisdom after this huge, vast experience that Israel have been having throughout those, those 72 years or th- 73 years of existence. one is that one-time assassination, which is not part of a, a policy the, of an ongoing operation, not just assassination, but ongoing kinetic operation against your enemy usually doesn't work. It just creates follow-ups that you cannot confront. Second, killing leaders, like uh, Secretary General Musawi will maybe change the course of history, but not necessarily to the path that you directed it. Here, they killed Musawi. Nasrallah came, he was 31 years old and and made Hezbollah a strategic enemy of Israel, probably the most important enemy that Israel has faced for, for decades. Third is that in some cases, Israel proved that when it's a part of a strategy, when it's done continuously, and when Israel has the ability to comprehend and contain the reaction or the, the attempts to retaliate from the other side, it has an effect. And, uh, you know, the, the fact that the PLO decided in 1973 and 74 to withdraw from Europe and regroup in the Middle East where it was much easier for the Mossad to, to deal with them, is mainly because of the series, the campaign of targeted killings, that the Mossad took after the killing of the athletes in Munich in 1972. And you know, I had a conversation with Michael Hayden, the former chief of the CIA and the NSA, and I for, for Rise and Kill First, I interviewed him, and he said, uh, General Hayden, uh, what was the one single tool that Israel or the United States, together or not together or separately, activated, was were using against the Iranian nuclear project in order to stop it or to delay it, and was the most effective. And he didn't hesitate, and he surprised me. And he said, the one most important tool was the fact that someone was starting to kill their chief scientists. Then he said, Ronan, it's illegal according to American law, and it was not us. Then I smiled. He said, why are you smiling? I said, General Hayden. You know who it was. He said, the Israelis never told us it was them. But you know, when you, you sit with the, C, the CIA and Mossad, or CIA with Israeli intelligence are uh, sitting and, and marking, designating who are the main Iranian scientists, and those scientists are uh, dropping dead in the middle of the street in Tehran, it was not you, then you assume it was the other side of the, of the table. And I asked him, I said, General Hayden, why was that so effective? And he recalled that first meeting of the National Security Council, in under President Obama, January 2009, when the president asked him, Michael Hayden, he said General Hayden, the chief of the CIA, General Hayden, how much enriched uranium is there in tons? By the way, the same question that Mike, that David uh, uh, referred to uh, before, how much enriched uranium the Iranian has today? That's part of the, the enrichment project. So he asked him and uh, Michael Hayden replied, he said, Mr. President, I know the answer to that question, how much enriched uranium is there in Natanz, but let me say this is not important because there's no single electron from Natanz that would end up in a nuclear bomb. What they are building in Natanz, he said to the press, the President Obama, that what they're building in Natanz is not a bomb, they are building knowledge. And there is only one way with which you can destroy knowledge.
1: Well, let me just follow up just very quickly, because between 2010 and 2012, four nu- uh, Iranian nuclear scientists were assassinated.
2: That, that's right. And if you go and you look, I, I have a little chart I use. I wish I, we had visual for this, but I use this in our national security class, where we plot the cyber attacks, the killing of the scientists, the sanctions, you know, all that kind of stuff. And what do you discover? That again, tiny blip in the number, uh, in, in the delay in producing new centrifuges and total output of uranium. The only thing that got uranium in large supply out of Iran was that in the 2015 agreement, the Iranians had to ship 97% of their stockpile to Russia. To Russia. And they did. Right. And so, even with everything they've been producing since, as Ronan pointed out, They've got enough now for maybe two weapons. With further enrichment, they had a lot more than that. Prior to the 2015 agreement,
3: but, but let, me, let, me, let me just let me just add something. Uh, maybe on on this, uh, David and I do not fully agree. But if we would be in total uh, one view on everything, it wouldn't be interesting. Look, the the JCPOA was signed in the summer of 2015. Iran has. Sort of started or launched its nuclear project in the early 90s, and right. put, gave it gave it a a, a quite a si- significant push in the uh, late 90s. So until the end of uh, 2015, they were trying to develop nuclear weapon, and without the JCPOA in, in place. And I think that the main reason why they were not able, and this is a very advanced country, rich, that did, want, did not spare resources. The late Mr. there was doing everything he can to advance the, uh, the weapon rule. The main reason was the joint effort, by mainly by the U.S. and Israel, which had overt parts like economic sanctions and boycotts and then the, the uh, prevention of dual use dual-use equipment, uh, export to Iran, but also secret parts like sabotage, assassination, etc. The overall, not one, the overall strategy was the, the, the tool with which Iran was not able to reach the point that they were trying. That is a nuclear weapon.
0: Okay. So Ronan, you mentioned the sort of morally controversial aspect of this. Um, The Israelis uh, assassinate uh, Iranian nuclear scientists. Um, The Saudis dismember a journalist who it perceives as a threat to its regime. Uh, The Russians poison former operatives to send a message so that others don't defect to the West and undermine its national security. And the United States engages in targeted killings, extrajudicial killings via drone strike, and has done so for years. The one distinction that leaps out to me is that with the drone strikes, there is collateral damage and innocent people get killed uh, much more likely than in the poisoning of the Russians and the targeted killings by the Israelis. What is the moral distinction between what we do with drone strikes against suspected terrorists and what these other countries are doing? Uh, I'd like to hear from both of you on that, starting with David. So not much, uh, if
2: you're on the receiving end of it. You know, the way, that you, the way that you would measure this would be the killing of Soleimani, the Iranian uh, general, uh, IRGC general, in Iraq by a drone in January. And you have to ask the question, how does this differ from the uh, Israelis killing Fakhrizadeh? The Americans would say, well, we have direct evidence that Soleimani was planning attacks on American soldiers. OK,
0: and that Fakiriste, which they never publicly release and often get squishy right. when you try to find the details for that justification, which is right. standard. But
2: I don't doubt that he had tried some in the past and probably did have some plans that would go to it. But I agree with you. It's squishy to put together. And they never did release the evidence. And he was, of course, the head of the Quds Force, and, you know, IRGC uh, general. Uh, Fakiriste was also in the IRGC, although he was not uniformed. And um, it is interesting that you have not heard one word of condemnation about his assassination from the Trump administration. They haven't mentioned it. On the day that he was assassinated, two not quite two weeks ago, two weeks ago tomorrow, or the day after, we asked the State Department, do you have anything to say about Iran? And they said, yeah, we just imposed a bunch of new sanctions.
3: And just a minute after we posted, David, myself, and some other colleagues, our story about the assassination, President Trump retweeted that story, which is, I assume, not a regular thing that President Trump is doing, retweeting the New York (laughs) Times. And of all stories, he retweeted that one. Maybe he knew that this is coming. I would assume that if it was indeed Israel, in the strong, extensive cooperation and, and um, relationship of those two administrations, the Netanyahu and the Trump, uh, there wouldn't be such a, a dramatic action taken by Israel without informing, almost to the extent of receiving uh, permission, the, the U.S. administration before.
1: Ronan, I-, I would just like to have you talk a little bit about some of the more interesting Israeli operations, because a lot of them seem like they come out of a James Bond movie. Some of them, not so much. Uh, there have been some botched assassination attempts that have been very embarrassing for the Mossad and the Israeli leadership. But I'd like maybe for you to talk about a couple of your the ones that you think are most uh, interesting and, and compelling. And let's start with um, the uh, Hezbollah leader, whose name I botched before, Imad Mughniyeh. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, you mentioned Soleimani uh, before. I think the Israelis had an opportunity to take out Soleimani long before the Americans did, when he was with Mughdaniya. But tell us about Iman Mugdaniya and that operation.
3: Just in, in a minute... Going back to Monia, but before you mentioned James Bond, and I think that people usually fail to see the the main difference between what we see in James Bond movies, as well as in many others, and the real world of intelligence, the real world of Israeli intelligence, the one that I'm trying to describe. You know, James Bond is one man show. He enters the office of M, the chief of MI6, now politically correct, of course, it's a woman. He gives the analysis to the information, He gives the overall view of what is happening. He hacks the computer. Then he goes and he flies the helicopters. He drives the Espon Martin. He jumps from roofs. He shoots. It all happens within two hours. Comes home on time to uh, make love with the most sexiest woman, drinking martini, shaking, but not sir. Now, putting sex aside, of course, but in the real world of intelligence, what he does by himself, is done by many, 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 many different people, each one with her or his own expertise, and doing that. So the operation, it's not an assassination, but the operation that David and I reported about back in uh, the summer of 2018, the Mossad uh, stealing the Iranian nuclear military secret archive, the Mossad version of, of Ocean 11, that operation, at the end of that operation, two years of planning, there were 18 operatives in that warehouse in Tehran, but in the overall participation in the building of the intelligence and operational envelope, there were no less than 500 operatives, each one doing something. And as much as we are going with more technology and, and more advanced operations, way beyond the millions, etc., then you need more people nowadays. And so this is fast. Sometimes thousands of people are participating in one operation, and in such a small country like Israel, when it exercised those methods throughout time, then you get practically tens of thousands of people that throughout their lives took some part in some assassination operation. Just think, what does it mean about a country? What does it mean about people? What does it mean about mindset, by psychology? Um, In Israel, in order to to approve such an operation, you need to be, you, know, to go, you need to go to the prime minister. And only in Israel, very young people are going with the head of their agency, head of Mossad or military intelligence, some of them under the age of 30, some of them under the age of 25 going to the prime minister to, to try to convince the prime minister to authorize to kill a person. And only in Israel, some of those people throughout time cross that room and become the prime minister, like it's Shamir or... Even with right. or, or, or others
0: yeah uh that's uh, one of the more fascinating details in uh, in your book where you start out with the uh, or in the first chapter the assassination of the UN envoy ordered by Shamir back in the late 1940s and of course Shamir oh. later becomes oh, prime yeah. minister um listen there's so many fascinating stories um I'm sure I'm just one of many who will be looking forward to the HBO documentary when it finally gets made about uh about your book uh Ronan and uh, David whose book has already been turned into an HBO doc. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Uh, Great discussion. Thank you.